Okay, we're back after lunch. After lunch, day two. Goodness, I needed that food. I was dying. <laughs> Absolutely um, dying. Yeah, it's been a it's it, it's been a lot of hard work today. Yeah, but our our, our next guest uh, took us out to dinner last night. Yes, yes, we had so amazing generous. amazing conversation. Talked about a bunch of cool stuff. Yep, and we had to have her come by today. Let's let her introduce herself. So, if you would, just start with your name, who you work for, and what you do. All right, um, I'm Jennifer Gilly. I work with David Evans and Associates in their quarterly office, and I do survey and GIS. Survey and GIS. And how did you get into survey and GIS? Um, I had the illustrious privilege of graduating in the year 2008 to all the job mm. opportunities. And oh, nice. I, I found an internship and left my state behind and went from there. I worked with the Coeur d'Alene tribe doing some field work and oh, well. I learned GIS to collect the data out there and there was a fantastic manager they had, Frank Roberts, and he kind of took me on and taught me most of what I know today. Cool. Cool. So um, you had a good mentor? Absolutely. We talk about mentoring a lot on yes, this show. Yeah. And how important it is. And uh, what was the gentleman saying? Frank Roberts. Frank Roberts. Um, and do you still keep in touch with Frank? Yeah. Yep. Cool. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long have you been at uh, David Evans? I've been at David Evans for almost two years now. So okay. pretty short so far. Yeah, we had a great time uh, with you and your group last night. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of cloudy people. Oh, yeah. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. We appreciate that. There was a lot of brain power in that room, too. Like, yeah. I walked out of there feeling dumb. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, <laughs> I would just hear snippets of conversations. And You're like, man, that's over my head. Like, let, me, let me just go back to my mashed potatoes. Oh, no worries. You had great questions last night. It's so funny. But Jennifer, so not only are you uh, surveying, well, you're uh, GISP, right? I'm you GISP and yep. LSIT. LSIT. So you're on track to get your license when? Um, as early as the summer. Um, that's what I'm pushing for. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. And like, what, um, what, do, you, what do you love about surveying? What I love about surveying is that they, it's like being a private investigator. You get to really delve into all of the information, find the history of things, um, mm-hmm. and, and know that you're right, not just assume. You actually do have like real tangible evidence that you can make informed decisions on, and it makes you feel more comfortable and, and a little bit more empowered, too, than just GIS. Yeah, for sure. I tell the folks that uh, the report to me, I say all the time, don't ever assume anything. No. That's you'll get burned, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just get burned once or twice, and you'll never do it again. Never, no. For sure. Uh, what, so, what kind of drives you crazy about surveying? Um, what drives me sur- crazy about surveying is that um, there's a lot of really great new tech out there, and a lot of really great new information out there that's not really being utilized or leveraged or really even appreciated yet. Mm-hmm. As younger surveyors are coming up, they're using it. Um, but sometimes there's, there's a clash sort of where you try to bring something in and say, hey, this is really useful and it makes things more accurate. It's going to help us with liability and money. And they're just like, no, nope, we did it this way before. We're doing it this way now. Yeah. At, at times I get the uh, stick in the mud uh, uh, feeling from t- some of the surveyors out there mm-hmm. that really should should embrace the, the new the new stuff. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. Now, having you know gotten to know you a little bit the last couple of days, it's you know, it's very apparent that you know you make an effort to stay up on like the latest trends and technologies and things like that. Um, how how do you how, like what are some of the uh, tools that you use, I guess, to to stay up on things like that? Um, tools that I use to stay up on, on tech to learn about it or yeah, to yeah, utilize I mean, it? Yeah, because it takes time, you know, I mean, it takes effort to do that. Um, what are some good resources? Oh, um, some good resources there are uh, the main software packages that we use themselves are constantly putting out new advertisements and new resources and we have fantastic partnerships with them so they'll even come to us and say, hey, we have this great new tech, we really want you to try it out and see what you think. Um, we just had a, a great um, meeting with like TopoDot. They said, hey, we have this brand new tool that we're going to be coming out with. We want to see what you think of it, and can you test it and see if it's doing what you want it to do? Mm-hmm. Is it something you want to take on? And oh my gosh, it, it blew our minds. Really? It was awesome. Super cool. Is it something you'll use for a specific project? Absolutely. Oh, Actually, wow. for several of them. Um, it, it's pretty. It's a pretty awesome tool. Um, they just announced it here at GeoWeek, so I think I can talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're implementing some AI into their um, point cloud uh, ground classification nice. and it does a lot better under vegetation and it's, it's really slick. Yeah. So um, your involvement at David Evans as it pertains to surveying, are you like in a certain group or how, how, how does that look at David Evans? Um, we have an overarching um, like geomatics uh, geospatial team that is 
company-wide, but then I'm also in a, a small regional group because we're so large we kind of have to section off. So I'm in the Mountain West region. Uh, we cover pretty much everything from Idaho and Wyoming uh, East. So then in my particular office, I have my mentor who I work under, who's my supervisor, and a couple other LSITs, and like our chief pilot, Aaron, is there. Yeah. Yeah. We met Aaron uh, yeah. yesterday yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, we talked yeah. to Aaron yesterday. She is, she's something else. Firecracker. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she is. So funny. Yeah. Oh, man, just I, really enjoyed that. I'm just thinking about all the things we talked about last night that I wanted to, to kind of get out there. We talked a lot about bees. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else did we go through? Well, no, I mean... Uh, you know, springboard off the beat conversation, uh, honey. Oh, that yeah. That was a great conversation. That was yeah, a great conversation. Yeah, so, very interesting. Yep, yep. So you, now that we've gotten out there, um, do you consider yourself a beekeeper? Do you fall into the beekeeper category, or what? what, what is a beekeeper? Um, a beekeeper, uh, quite simply, would be anybody, I think, that does keep bees. Mm -hmm. um, there are commercial beekeepers, and there are hobbyist beekeepers. Mm -hmm. And I would consider myself a hobbyist. I don't have... Um, a large amount of hives that I, I take care of and it's not a business although I do have an LLC to protect myself in case something did happen. Oh sure. I have warning labels on my bottles but you never know somebody might decide that oh crap you know we need to sue that person so LLCs are really good for that and uh, I is actually that, learned that, that from survey. <laughs> bottles of honey? Yes. Yeah. Like oh, that's no, right. Nobody under one should ever eat honey ever. Anybody, oh, with, really? a, anybody with a compromised immune system or um, like their GI tract issues should mm -hmm. be should be careful. But definitely nobody under one should ever eat Why? Why is that? Um, it's because, and it sounds kind of scary, but it's not. Um, it, on flowers and in soil, there are natural colonies of botulism uh, bacteria. And so um, our systems, our stomachs, have acid strong enough to destroy them before they become a problem. But somebody who maybe their gut is not uh, as acidic, like a little baby, it may not destroy it. And so they can actually get botulism. Hmm. Huh. Never knew that. I, I, you said not to be scared, but I am a little scared now. You have very strong stomach acid. You're at like a pH of three down there. They will die. Okay. It's right. fine. Right. So, like how many bees would you say you have? Um, we're coming out of the winter season when they're at their smallest. So probably only about 30 to 50,000 are in there right now. And then they'll quadruple by summer so that they can uh, get out there and forage. Out there and forage. So yeah, the bees, they're not like... Crazy word for bees like, to forage, but... They're not caged in, right? Okay. I mean, no. I mean, they're just, they, they're like free doing whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They just know to come back to like their hives, right? Which... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, there's no caging bees. No caging bees. <laughs> they will find a way out. That's how we got killer bees down, down south. Oh, You, you gotcha. can't contain them. They will find a way. Gotcha. How do you... I'm sure there's ways to make sure your bees are healthy, maybe? Absolutely, yes. How do you how do you know or keep the bees healthy? How do you know they're healthy? Um, every two weeks you go into the hive and you do a hive check and you see how they're doing, how many babies there are, what stage they're at in life stage. Mm -hmm. Does it look like um, the patterns look good? Do they have enough food? Are they acting normal? Um, how many of them are in there? There's a lot of little subtle hints that will tell you. Even the sound of their buzzing can tell you if there's something wrong. That's so interesting. I'm going to do so much research on bees, you have no idea. <laughs> I don't think you have the space in uh, at your house to have a, no, have a beehive. No, no, They no, actually no. take remarkably little space. A lot of people have them on their roofs, on their balconies, um, in their backyards. I have a tiny little backyard. As long as it's spacing the right way, you don't need much space at all for them. So, I, I have to imagine bees probably take less space than a goat. Absolutely. Like, I would love to have a goat. <laughs> yeah, a little baby pygmy goat. They're so I, cute. I want a goat too, but... Oh, as uh, a pet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was say, that's really delicious meat. I was just thinking about more of like <laughs> yard maintenance, but yard maintenance. Oh yes. Yeah, I don't have a yard. <laughs> Everything in my backyard is fake. There's not one real thing in my backyard. Yeah, that just tells me I don't think the the bees are gonna like the uh, concrete jungle and fake grass no. back there yeah. that you got going. They're gonna have to go just go find some better <laughs> right. stuff. They'll go five miles to go find food. Five miles. Yep. Wow. So. so how do you know that? Because they did a study to find out how far a bee could go on a full stomach of honey, and it was five miles before they have to refuel. So where does the honey come from? They will drink the nectar out of the flowers, yeah. and it will go into what's called their honey stomach. And so it's different from their actual eating food stomach, and they will bring that back to the hive, and they actually swap it back and forth between the worker bees inside, and they'll add uh, preservatives and enzymes to it that have great health benefits for us, but yeah. especially keep it from ever going bad. And then they'll store it in the cells and fan the water off until it's like 70%. You really want 80% or 90% sugar content, and they cap it off. My honey stomach 
<laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to get so much mileage out of this conversation. <laughs> I'm curious because when you mentioned the study and how you know they went, is there an application or is there a confluence of, of bees and beekeeping and GIS and, and maps? Like, it, hey, do you, I'm sure you've thought about this before, but you know, like, you know, you can't track the, you know, you can't put little trackers on them. Little bee trackers. Little bee trackers. Oh. But, but somehow, I mean, you know, we're, you know, is there any, any crossover there? Uh, there is crossover. And first of all, you actually can put a tracker on a bee. You can? <laughs> you can. <laughs> They've done studies on it. Oh yes, they're, um, well, like I come from Michigan and so there's universities that are like farming universities. They're dedicated mm. to farming. There's universities that are dedicated mm. to animal husbandry. Bees kind of fall under animal husbandry. They actually count as livestock. Um, so they've done a lot of these different kind of studies, and they have implemented GIS. And I admit that I may have used my GIS application to find out the five-mile radius from my house to find out where they were going. <laughs> For sure, you got to know that stuff. Uh, of course, yeah. Throughout gallivanting, want to make sure they're not getting into anything they shouldn't. <laughs> yes, yeah. out gallivanting or there, foraging. Actually, yeah, there's actually some flowers that they really shouldn't get into because you'll get poisoned. But. Oh, wow. um, Luckily, up here in the U.S., we don't really have to worry too much about that unless there's a huge population of those flowers. Yeah. So I'm really interested in this, and you know, I've heard about it, and uh, there's like, is there still a shortage of bees, or is there a bee problem where I've heard this, you know, yes. if, if, the, the, if there's no bees, we all die because there's no mm-hmm. food. And Absolutely. Are you, it, when is that going to happen? Um, it, it really depends on how soon we can get our heads out of our... So what Egos. what do we need to do <laughs> to Sorry. increase the bee population, or is that, is that um, what it is? Do you, do we need more bees, or do we need better bees in different places? It's a complex question. I actually did my undergrad in environmental science and conservation, so yes, we do need to do something. Um, is it get more European bees over here into the U.S. to make up the difference? Eh, no. Um, we need to make space, we need to give space back to the native bee populations in the U.S. that are tanking hardcore right now. Because of habitat loss mostly, because of pesticide use that we have not outlawed here that they have over in Europe. Okay. Um, and because of introduced uh, pests and diseases from the European bees to the populations here. And the fact that our own honeybee populations that we brought over there, European bees, are also failing because of several different factors. Um, we have the varroa mite infestation. This actually eats the liver, like the fatty tissue in them, and um, they come out with deformations. They may not come out at all. You have colony collapse in the wintertime because there's not enough to keep them warm because they're all dying. Um, that brings in diseases like uh, shrivel wing, fowl brood, European fowl brood. Um, all those sorts of things are, are playing against them. But really, we just need to be a little less selfish. We need to stop over-commercializing what we have. If they could, and this is an idealistic world, I know this isn't gonna happen, but if they could stop their pollinization of like almond groves in California for a couple of years and let us get a handle on the infestations that we're dealing with, because you know we go and we treat and we treat and we treat, but then every single year, all those bees go to the same location to do the same thing, and if one of them's infected, it's all over again. Um, and take better care of the honeybees that we have and especially take better care of the native bees that have been here longer. They know what they're doing. So ChatGPT says, Oh boy. I just asked if there was a bee shortage and this is what came up. Yes, there's a global shortage of bees, particularly honeybees, which are the most important pollinators of crops and plants. The shortage is due to a number of factors, including habitat loss, pesticide use, climate change, and disease and pest pressures. Yeah, that's what she just said. She, I, that's why I had to say this because she was saying that. I'm like, is she reading this right? She, she nailed it. She nailed it. Nailed it. Um, so what, what, what can I do? What can I do to help this? By, you know, only stick to the local, local honey or um, should I, I mean, me starting a hive in my backyard is probably not going to make a difference, but. It, it depends on, on what your values are and where your strengths lie. Um, do you have a yard? Not really. I mean, it do, but it's tiny. Okay. Um, consider instead of having a nice manicured lawn of Kentucky bluegrass and, you know, all those those absolute deserts of plants for bees and plant some wildflowers that are good for the wild flora and fauna in your neighborhood. Oh, uh, uh, there you go. That uh, makes sense. Yeah. You, 
support your local beekeepers, you know, go to a farmer's market, buy local honey, kind of ask them about their outfit, and um, maybe get involved in some of your local um, counties and, and boards and speak up about how, you know, we need to maybe set aside public land for this. You know, there's always public projects that are going on. They're always looking for input from the public of, you know, how can we maybe be more environmentally friendly, more help with climate change, what can we do? It's like, let some of your land go fallow. Let some of it have native wild like, like in um, in Moscow and in, in Boise, Idaho, they have initiatives now to start planting native plants back where wow. you know they have the manicured lawns. They're ripping them out. It helps with their water shortages because these plants can bring the water down back into the soil. It doesn't run off. Um, knocks down pesticides because you're not spraying. You know they already look like weeds. You're not spraying them with pesticides or herbicides to get rid of them. So. Mm. Um, my lawn at home is half clover and half native grasses, and I don't use pesticides on it because my bees are eating. That's their dinner plate. I'm not going to poison it. Interesting. Um, so back to uh, the te- technical side of things uh-huh. of this conversation. Uh, the fact that you're, you know, GISB, you're pursuing your uh, professional licensure as a surveyor. That's, uh-huh. a, that's um, a unicorn too, right? <laughs> I just think, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think I know anybody else that has those two. I probably do. I don't you, know, we, whatever. But still, it's rare. It's rare. And it's congratulations rare for, sure. for, for doing that. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's super cool. But it's also, you know, there's always been this wall mm-hmm. between surveyors and GIS professionals, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, what is your perspective on that? I mean, obviously, we can coexist. Absolutely. We need to coexist. Mm-hmm. GIS needs surveyors. Surveyors, whether they want to admit it or not, kind of need the GIS <laughs> folks. Um, what do you think? But you notice how he's a surveyor and he said kind of need. He didn't say kind of need on the first one, so just pointing that out. Absolutely need. Um, I've I've heard both sides of the story. I can you know go to a conference with surveyors, say I'm an LSIT, and I'll hear their side of it. I go to you know Eurisa or an Esri conference, and I'm GISP, so I hear that side of it. And um, I really, it's one of those like age-old feuds where you don't really know who started it. It's just perpetuated for the last couple of decades. Um, if I had to hazard a guess, I, I think the surveyors maybe could have been a little more welcoming when the new tech came out, but I'm younger generation. That's just kind of my thing. Um, Jen, you don't have to sugarcoat it. They definitely needed to be more <laughs> welcoming were. in their jerks. We try so hard. We're like, we're, look, we got data. We know how to use all of your equipment. We pr- sometimes even know how to use it better than you do. We can do all the same things. We just don't know what you do, and you won't tell us what you do so we can be better because uh, we want to be better. Um, so, you know, the whole GIS stands for Get It Surveyed. Don't ever say that again, please. We are so sick of <laughs> hearing terrible. it. Um, but I, I, I finally got tired of that in my, we had just hired a new PLS, um, Daryl Ramos, my mentor, and he came in one day and said, why aren't you a surveyor? And I'm like, well, it'll take eight years and I'm not going to get paid for it, so why bother? Um, but they had um, opened up new avenues in Idaho for us to still get uh, four-year ABED accredited university education and do it rapidly because I already had degrees Um, and so I started becoming a surveyor because I was sick and tired of hearing that we weren't good enough as GIS people to do these things out there that we felt we could do and I really wanted to understand that gap and and why it was there and be able to translate back and forth so you know I passed my fundamentals of survey after I I fulfilled all the credit requirements and they um, squeaked me by through the process. They, they didn't really kind of want to give it to me, even though I passed the exam and I had shown I had all the education. They really, like, I had to go through a review. I understand it was because I kind of came in in a sideways way and it was a brand new process, but still. Yeah. Um, I did finally get my LSIT officially approved by the Board of Idaho and we're great. Um, and now I really try to advocate a lot to have more people like me. I shouldn't be the exception. I should be the norm. You should have a lot of people who know both. Yeah. I agree, 100%, 100%. And you know, not everything has to be survey grade accuracy. It does, it does, you and know. I absolutely agree about that, and I know yeah. that a lot of GIS people don't see why that's important, and if you just told them why it was important, I think a lot more of them would be on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, educating each other. Exactly, and so at our company, I'm starting to try and teach a little bit of GIS to our survey folk and a little bit of survey to our GIS folk. Yeah, no, it's just, incredibly valuable. Yeah, just enough so they understand why we're asking these questions, why we do the things the way we do, and they're starting to have some really good questions. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. What you got? That's it for me. That's it? Yeah. Anything else you want to get out there, Jennifer? Um, just, you know, if you're a GIS person out there and you're getting tired of surveyors making fun of you, it doesn't take that much um, to get a couple of 
fundamentals under your belt so you can communicate with them. And they really are trying to do the same, they have the same goal. We all have the same goal of accurately mapping this world. Yep. Um, it's just a difference in fundamentals and, and history that's really pretty easy to overcome if you're willing to listen. And same for surveyors with GIS. Find your GIS person and ask them about coordinate systems. Trust me, it's a good question. It's a great question. <laughs> great question. All right. Well, hey, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. yeah, yeah, appreciate it. It's been, been a blast. Yep. Yeah. All right. Next, we have Walter with us. Walter, if you would, just a quick self-introduction, uh, name, who you're with, and uh, what you do. Yeah. So my name is Walter Burgess. I'm the co-CEO of Power Technology, a laser manufacturer. Power Technology. So this is a new company for me. I'm not familiar with what you guys do. So uh, just kind of fill the listeners in. What does Power Technology do? So lasers uh, and lasers from an OEM standpoint. So we're the enabling light source that enables a lot of the geospatial applications, as well as life sciences, semiconductor manufacturing. And we've been doing that since 1969. Got wow. started on our founder's kitchen table. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. There's <laughs> a lot there. Where do we go from here? Uh, so the lasers for like LiDAR and stuff like that? Is that what you're talking about? So that's one of many things that okay. we do. But, you know, in 1969, the yep. original customer was laying sewer pipe with a laser. Okay. Trying okay. to make gotcha. sure that they got lasers yep. on grade or the mm -hmm. pipe on grade okay. using lasers. And so uh, we sort of started in an adjacent market. And then now it's turned into you know, lasers for geospatial and LIDAR and all these other great things that everybody here at GeoWeek is doing. It's, uh, it's a good time to be in the laser business, I have to believe. Well, uh, especially when you're in this room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of familiar names here, companies yeah. we've worked with over the years, and uh, we just enjoy making high-precision lasers and letting them do all the magic beyond that. How do you make a laser? Well, it takes a marriage of three things. It takes uh, electronics engineering. Okay. It takes optical engineering. Okay and uh, mechanical engineering to manage all the heat that we generate. And in geospatial, we don't generate a lot of heat, mm -hmm. but still have to hold everything in space together. The laser's gotta be in front of the lens and that can't move, so. So why do certain lasers generate more heat than others? So generally, uh, lasers that have high power generate mm -hmm. a lot more heat. Uh, lasers aren't 100% efficient, you know, they might convert only 40 or 50 or 20 percent of their electrical input into light output mm -hmm. and so then on top of that you have some optical losses and those losses also are heat so it, it can add up to a lot of heat especially if you're dealing with a 100 watt or 200 watt laser mm. um, you can get there what are the what are some of the applications for a high powered laser these days uh, one that we've been really excited about is a high power blue laser it doesn't relate to geospatial but uh, blue laser light is exceptionally powerful when it comes to cutting copper, gold, and silver, oh. or welding of copper. Oh. And so um, if you convert, or I'm sorry, if you consider a, a 1060 laser that's normally used for cutting metal, uh, the blue wavelength is seven times more efficient in the cutting of copper. And so that's one of the higher power applications okay. we're excited about. Um, and the main application there is uh, battery terminals for EVs. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So are a lot of the people that are here in the, in, in the exhibit hall, are they your clients? So we have worked with a number of the big names that are here in the okay. floor, and uh, we build that laser engine, and they build the car around it. So mm. we would build, for example, a LiDAR laser, and then someone else would build a detection system and mm -hmm. you know, do the computation that's related to that. So we'd be the laser expert, and they'd be the LiDAR expert. Interesting. So do people come to you with like a, a laser problem and then you develop a laser to solve said problem? Absolutely. Okay. Sometimes it's expressed as, hey, at 500 meters, I need a beam the size of a quarter hmm. uh, and I need it to be red or infrared yeah. in a specific wavelength or color. And we get to tell them the laws of physics allow us to do that or, hmm. you know, your spot size is going to be four inches instead of a quarter. And so, yeah, they come to us with problems, and we solve problems. Wow. Yeah. You never even think about no. what, what goes into some, no. of these, some of these machines yeah. and, like, all the different components. Like. So why are some lasers visible and others aren't? 
That's a great question. It really comes down to the recipe of what goes into the laser. The laser recipe. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Maybe we should start there. Who knew? It's like, who how knew? do you how do you make a laser? Like, <laughs> I mean, you, it just doesn't teaspoon of heat. You know. You know. Yeah. yeah it's like. Uh, <laughs> so it, it really goes back to semiconductors. Uh, they're the most popular type of laser. That's the kind of laser that's in your laser pointer or your Blu-ray player, your old DVD player. Those are all based on semiconductor wafers and semiconductor physics. And so you can choose the materials that you grow and start making that laser with, everything down to the substrate. So, for example, if you wanted to make a blue laser, you'd start with gallium and nitride, gallium nitride. Uh, if you wanted uh, infrared laser, it'd be indium and phosphide. So all those materials God gave us on the periodic element of tables, periodic table of elements, whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah that thing. Yeah, never mind the science. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah. you know, it's all material, so we can mix and match to get the wavelengths and the colors we want. So who's like the founding father of lasers? Well, since is, we're is talking there, about blue lasers, yeah. it was Soji Nakamura. Um, and uh, we were honored enough to have him visit our factory in 1999. Oh, wow. And that was just a few years before he won the uh, Nobel Prize for making the blue laser. Uh, if you go huh. back further than that, Gordon Gould was the, the guy who invented the laser. And I believe that was sometime early 60s. And then, of course, we started in 69. So we just happened to be in the right place, the right time. And now it's one of the oldest laser companies in the world. And what was the what was the purpose, or why did you make the first laser? Not you, but the founder. You know, yeah. on his kitchen table. What was what was the application for the first laser? That's a great question. the uh, The first application was sewer pipe laying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he just happened to end up at a company called AGL, or back then it was called Blunt and George. Um, AGL has been bought by one of the big brands here. Uh, I'm not going to say which one because I don't remember exactly. <laughs> but uh, they had an electronics package, and those old lasers required high voltage, something like 10 or 15,000 volts to begin to, to make the red laser light for laying the pipe. And their electronics failed frequently, and they cost a lot of money. And so he arrived on scene. A friend of him told him that this manufacturer's having a problem. So he arrived there they told him what the problem was he pulled the back cap off the laser um, went home and on his kitchen table he applied his aerospace and defense manufacturing knowledge uh, into the back cap of the laser uh, which was novel for them they had never thought about that and then uh, returned with it to uh, to their factory and they looked at it very skeptically and said we'll call you back in six weeks well, two weeks later, they, right. called, they called back and said, we want to place our largest order ever. And he didn't have a company, you know, he just had the prototype. But, you know, it's a great American dream story. You know, we, we like entrepreneurship. We're very entrepreneurial in our business. And we just really follow the example that he set for us. So how did it grow from there? And you know, yeah. how did it evolve to what it is now? How, how big is the company now? So uh, we're a multi-million dollar privately held company. All the owners work in the company. Okay. And so uh, it grew because we started making the electronics package, a high voltage uh, electronics package that powers the laser. And uh, he started advertising in a magazine called Laser Focus World or Photonic Spectra, one of those two leading magazines in, in the laser industry. And customers uh, just started contact him and, and placing orders and it grew so much with the, the original technology which was a gas-based laser that when semiconductor lasers were invented you know the company already had the majority of the customers that it needed mm. and they they used a gas laser because that's all there was right now you know now they had a semiconductor laser they could begin to use a red semiconductor laser and it was the size of their pinky instead of the size of a baseball bat so huh. It, uh, it grew on its own, and you know, years later, we acquired a German company, and they make a laser based on a crystal, and so it's just evolved over the last 53 years. Wow. <laughs> I have so many questions going through my mind right now. Good God. So, like, if you, when you buy a laser, does it come in a box? I mean, what? how is a laser delivered? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Is, so is like uh, some massive piece of hardware, or what, what is it? So they, they start out small, you know, thanks to the modern technology that we use. They can be the size of your pinky. Uh, and then they get a little bit bigger, uh, maybe an inch and a half by seven inches long, just to give you a rough idea. 
And uh, those are really convenient sizes for us to distribute globally uh, using UPS or FedEx or DHL. Hmm. Interesting. So is there a lot of competition in the laser industry? There is. I mean, of course, we have a lot of low-cost product coming across from China, and we mm-hmm. usually encourage people, hey, go buy that, and when it fails, right. you know, yeah. come back and see us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's some German, there's some Japanese competitors, and they're all, you know, very good at what they do, as we are. And uh, we just have friendly competition, and the best product wins. I like it. Interesting. So is there any... Um, danger when you're developing a laser it seems like you're dealing with these different you know materials and heat and is there is, is there some da- some risk involved when you're developing new lasers yeah there's always some risk but um, you know we have a highly regulated product lasers are pretty regulated by the food and drug administration of all people mm-hmm. um, huh. so we're very cognizant of the dangers that they pose Usually it's above five milliwatts, so a laser pointer is five milliwatts, but anything above that is something that you have to have extreme caution with. And of course, the horror stories are people aiming green lasers at airplanes. Yeah, right. I was going to ask that next, as a matter of fact. Which is a yeah. direct violation of federal law, so yeah. don't do that. It's like a $40,000 fine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have two certified laser safety officers that work in the company every day. And we rely on them to keep us safe and teach us the best practices. Hmm. So, what is uh, what does the you guys do R and D and you know are experimenting more like as much as you can tell us? I know the secrets are out there, but what's the what's the up and coming new new products and new technology? And where do you see you know you, your guys' stuff advancing? Yeah, so our big push right now uh, is around pulse lasers, which are the heart of the lidar system. Uh, we're working to deliver higher powers that generate beams at longer distances. So the you know, computational half of the device can have more time to uh, compute what is a danger or a threat. Um, we're doing a lot of work with uh, Vixel arrays to expand applications into you know, heating as well as some flash LiDAR. Um, so we're working in those directions right now. Um, Smaller products, always an interest. Um, so you know, try to listen to the customer and probably end up with some new CW lasers for the life science and semiconductor markets that are smaller formats than what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, what was I going to ask you? Gosh darn it. So, like, would the average person, like, are you ever going to have a need for a laser? Well, yeah, I got a cat, so, you know, it's <laughs> got to chase the little red dot around. Yeah, that's true. So, like the pulse laser, that's this is what I was going to ask you about. The pulse laser you talked about as it pertains to lighter. So that is returning information, right? Yeah. So that's like a two. Is that like a two-way laser or something? I mean, how does, how does well, that work? Well, just to simplify it, yeah. um, you know, all lidar is based on a distance measurement of a single pulse of light. So if I shine a pulse of light that's five nanoseconds long, which is a very short pulse, and I shine it at the wall over there, uh, we know how fast light travels. And so if I measure from the time the laser leaves here, hits the wall and bounces back, I can divide that by the speed of light. I can divide time by the speed of light and I can end up with distance. And so if I do that a million times, I can generate a dynamic point cloud. Um, And so that's how how lasers work Hmm. in, in LiDAR, for example. Interesting. And I'm oversimplifying it. There's a room full of LiDAR experts here. so Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. i, I got to sure, admit, sure. I, I am not a LiDAR expert. I'm a laser expert, but not a LiDAR expert. That's awesome. What else you got? Do we, do we uh, get his questions here? I think so. Yeah. I think the one question that, that you haven't asked that clients yeah. might be most interested mm-hmm. in is, you know, what's, what's the big debate over uh, 905 nanometer LiDAR okay. and 1550 LiDAR? I get asked this about every other week. But, um, you know, a lot of people are looking for an iSafe application where there is no danger, as you mm. mentioned earlier. Uh, so the 15, 15 nanometer light can't be focused on the eye, on the retina in the back of the eye. And that allows for a, an iSafe application. And that's really important when people are close to the laser. Mm. Um, people use 905 uh, nanometers because it's less expensive and it can provide close range. Um, and so it really depends on who wants to do what in the, in the market. So 
that's the number one LIDAR question I get. So I thought your your audience might, no, I appreciate that. might I, get a little bit. I, 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 I never even thought about that either. Yeah, yeah. Do you do stuff with the medical field as well? We do with a lot yeah. of life science or biomedical yeah. and Got it. everything from DNA profiling to blood gas analysis. So, sure. yeah. you know, what unifies all the applications we do is precision. Uh, you know, we're not going to compete on price because we're an American-made product. Uh, we're never going to compete on price with the, the Asian lasers that are coming, so we choose to compete on precision. Wow, really informative. Yeah, I'm, mine's blown over here. Like I, <laughs> I I'm just thinking. I'm so about, glad we but, had this yeah. conversation. <laughs> right, it's great. Anything else, Walter? You want to get out there? Well, just thank you for you guys to uh, having me on. Uh, if anybody wants to know more, yeah, how do they find you? www.powertechnology.com and technologies with a Y at the end. Okay. And we'd be happy to talk to anyone about their laser requirements. Awesome. Nice. Hey, thank you for your time. It's yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Glad yeah. to be here. Thank you. All right. Uh, we have Don with us. Don, it has been a while. We keep crossing paths at these events and exchanging emails and trying to, you know, uh, get together and be on each other's podcasts. And I know you got a lot going on. So real quick, why don't you just introduce yourself to everybody? Uh, your name, you know, what you do, and uh, yeah. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Hey, everybody, Don Zoldai. Uh, I am the CEO of P3 Tech Consulting. Uh, I'm retired United States Air Force Colonel. Um, spent a little bit of time as an Associate General Counsel, so I'm still a licensed attorney, but I don't practice law in my company. And um, let's see what else. Just got a lot of things going on, so I know we'll talk about that. You do indeed, and thank you for your service. Uh, yes, by first, the way. yeah, thank you. Absolutely, I did not know that. I wasn't aware of that. Yes, so cool, so cool. She so, already has a more impressive resume, and just those two sentences than like both of us combined. Absolutely, I tend to doubt that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so talk about P three and kind of like what what's going on with you now? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, I do a lot of consulting. Uh, people want to know about emerging technology, especially uncrewed aircraft systems, advanced air mobility. So that's that's a big line of effort. And then I'd say the other major bucket is really content creation. Mm. Uh, prolifically write uh, for a lot of different magazines and uh, have several podcasts. How do you manage all that? Um, you know, it's it's not easy. Um, and I'm learning to be a little bit more balanced in mm. my approach. Uh, luckily, this, this event here, we're at Geo Week in Denver. It's only like an hour 15 from my house. Oh, nice. Oh, so yeah. that's pretty that's amazing. Um, and AUVSI's Exponential is going to be up here, too, mm. so that's awesome. Um, but I'm scaling back a little bit on the travel this year. Are you, uh, is it a staff of one, or do you have a team of people? Well, I have a team, but technically it's a staff of one. So... I have a number of contractors that I work with. I have a marketing person, my producer, I have an associate production manager, and I had to hire a bookkeeper because I do not do public math. <laughs> math is hard. It, it, it is. <laughs> um, so uh, you mentioned multiple podcasts. Uh, talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, I'll, I'll call it our keystone podcast is mm -hmm. the Dawn of Drones. Uh, we were with uh, Drone Life last year and kind of from the inception of that show in 2020. And this year we migrated over to a UVSI platforms. Um, it's really, that show's really about company profiles. And we wrap it around a monthly theme. Mm. So for example, February is dedicated to protectors and defenders. And tomorrow I have Captain Miriam Fox from the Chula Vista PD that leads their uh, uncrewed aircraft systems program. Okay. Uh, they've been on the cutting edge of drone as first responders. So that's just one example. Um, I also have, uh, we, we started last year, just in June, two new podcasts. One's called The Full Crew. It's a technology newscast. And that's a ton of fun where we each pick a tech article and just mm. talk about it. And then the other one is kind of my baby. It's a tech industry leadership talks or The Full Tilt acronym uh, and it. it's really individual profiles mm. whereas Donna Drones is a company profile this is really about company leaders in the technology space and their personal journey they each pick a leadership theme that we talk about in the context of their entire lives and then you know in their current company so interesting yeah a ton of fun yeah so what are some of the like, emerging technologies that you're really excited about right now 
Man, uh, ChatGPT is like all the rage, right? Like every time I turn around, another I article up, I on ChatGPT. Uh, I'm trying to get through one show without us talking about ChatGPT. It's, it's, you know, like that was like our our full crew where we talked about. We actually demoed it on the full crew, and oh, that blew cool. up completely. We uh, that's awesome. our new meta. That's our new metaverse. It really, I mean, it there is. was a while where we only talked about the metaverse, and now it's all all ChatGPT Chat and AI. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah. gonna lie, it's helped me like write questions for podcast guests and stuff like that. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, we, it, we amazing. use it sometimes to summarize like mm. some of our, you know, if mm-hmm. we're trying to summarize what our show yeah. is about, yeah. run it through and out comes something pretty decent. So usually. you don't need me to do the summaries anymore. You just need to go on ChatGPT, type in whatever you want. Can we both know that I don't need you, but <laughs> it's just a little crushed, more enjoyable when you're around. There you you just like to cause me grief, don't you? <laughs> I really do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm really curious. Can you circle back to uh, drones as first responders? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm... I, what this Walk is? me through what that is. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's this just a new concept like, for me. It's so funny because, like, I live in this mostly drone world, right? And I, I forget the people that don't live there every day don't know what these things are. So drone as first responder is really a, actually a phrase that um, Chula Vista PD coined. Really? And so these 911 calls would come in and, uh, you know, what what they do is they, they fly a drone out uh, to get situational awareness and eyes on to the scene to see what is really happening. And I'll tell you, it's it's been incredible for them because they've been able to Number one, you know, turn off resources, for example. Like mm. somebody complains that there's a disturbance, they go out there, okay, it's a guy talking to himself, but this isn't a really, this isn't a police matter. We don't right. need to send people there. Yeah. Um, it also helps evaluate the situation. Um, and you should turn, tune in tomorrow, because I, I know the story that Miriam's going to tell uh, about how this, the drone was able to zoom in uh, to what this guy was holding in his hand. Which, in normal circumstances, people would have thought was a weapon, but they were able to see, and and not just the officer on the scene, but people back in the command center. They can stream it to a whole bunch of different, you know, uh, platforms, and um, yeah, it's just great situation. So is that like popping up on you know as the as as the police are you know racing out there and the the EMTs, and then they can just pop it up on their screen and see like what they're going like that that's really cool and not only that but they they also created uh, in conjunction with another company um this they call it 911 live hmm. and so when the call comes in like the cops can actually hear the call live like they don't have to wait for a dispatcher to translate that to them uh, so they've been able to actually save lives because on the spot like a patrolman might be right next to the house where a kid is drowning right and no like i'm like two blocks away i'm just going there and so that combined with the drone technology has really changed the game for them. And for so many other uh, public safety agencies, fi- they're plugged in with the fire department too. Mm. So it streams to the, yep, to the local cool. uh, fire department. Yeah, and I can see a lot of applications there of Huge. like, well, all right, how much hose do we need to bring? Like, oh, okay, it's here and here. You or know, how, and many, change, you know, how yeah. many people? How many that, trucks? What, right, yeah. I mean, there are times where they're like, you know, bringing seven trucks and it's like, no, we kind of need and one. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So, Springboarding off of that, I, is it like there's going to be like these grid, like a grid of drone stations. Yeah. Because just because of flight time and stuff like that, yeah. you know, it's like every three miles there's like a, a drone station or something. Yeah. Because they have to be deployed from somewhere. Yeah. I, I don't want to like steal Miriam's thunder for tomorrow, yeah. but I can tell you in Chula Vista, they strategically placed four rooftop locations and they literally have to have a person standing on the roof. Oh, they do? Yes. They, they hired a contractor called Flying Lion. And uh, they're the technically the pilots in charge, so they have to have visual line of sight. It's it's kind of crazy, but someday we're going to get to the point of drone in a box yep. that's going to pop out autonomously and just go. Yep. Um, we're not quite there yet, but they're yep. still doing great things with what they can do. Is that? No, you may not be the expert here, but is that in ten years or fifty years? No, not fifty. Uh, less than ten. Okay. Yeah. No. I. I mean, five would be outside. I mean. Um, so right now, you know, where the FAA is on this stuff, Beyond Visual Line Sight Aviation Rulemaking Committee published a 400-plus page report last year around this time. Uh, actually, it was March of 2022. And the FAA is still grappling with what to do with that. But I th- I'm hopeful we'll see some kind of rulemaking to help with this. But in the meantime, they're, 
I don't want to say liberally granting waivers for Beyond Visual Line of Sight, but definitely for law enforcement, they have a tactical BV loss um, waiver they can apply for that, once again, Chula Vista PD helped kind of pave the way for that for people. And you have an interesting perspective because of, you know, being an attorney as well. So I'm sure that you can understand when, like, the general population expresses concerns about these things. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, from a public, you know, health and safety perspective as well. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do we get past that? I think it's it's storytelling, like, right? So what do you see in the news? You see the bad things usually. The, yeah. the everyday amazing things that are happening with drones don't really hit the headlines. Or I always say, you know, we're very good at FUBU, for us, by us, like, right? Within our community, we tell our own stories, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, look, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, they're doing amazing things out there. Or, you know, um, Vladis Aerospace in Canada, you know, is doing long-line linear inspections and helping indigenous people and all of these things, but most people don't know about it. Mm. So I am excited to say that I'm hoping to cross that Rubicon. I'm actually doing a PBS special. Uh, yeah, on drones and electric vertical takeoff landing aircraft that should be coming out uh, this spring, um, first in the Rocky Mountain PBS channels and then syndicated after that. Yeah. So hopefully once we can tell these stories in a public way, uh, you know, in more mainstream media, um, you know, that people will see how amazing this technology can be. And then you're saying that general sentiment outweighs the one-off issues that people may have with public safety. I, I think so, yeah, because it's not only saving people's lives, citizens' lives, uh, what public safety is doing with drones, it's saving officer lives too. Yeah, yeah, I see uh, that. And, and tons of resources, yeah. So which one of these these podcasts and you know enterprises that you're doing, what's, what's your favorite? Oh my gosh, that's hard to say. Um, you know, I, I kind of love them all. Um, the leadership one is a special place in my heart because, you know, being a retired Air Force Colonel and, um, you know, and it was inspired, honestly. I, I had a Patreon. I shut that off. It was a subscription. But after the Donna Drones guest was done, we, you know, stopped live streaming and we would tape every guest and ask them three questions and it would go on my Patreon. It was, who's your hero and why? Uh, what's your favorite book, and what's one leadership tip that you learned along the way that you'd like to pass along to others? Well, we were getting these incredible responses, and that really inspired the Full Tilt podcast. We're like, everybody needs to hear this. Like, this is really life-changing good stuff that's not just about drones or about technology. It's about life. Right. So um, I love that one, I think, for that reason. Uh, it's just different. I have to say that you are one of those few people that we interact with that I think live on a different planet and days are like 40 to 50 hours a day for you while everyone else is a normal. Like, I just don't understand how you can get all these things done and do all, you know, everything you do. It's, it's amazing. No, I appreciate that. And if I have a second, I'd like to also just plug this uh, other thing that I do. Uh, I run events and um, I do this thing called the Law Tech Connect Workshop. And uh, kicked it off last year with AUVSI, their exponential first one. It was awesome. It's all about law, regulations, policies for uncrewed autonomous vehicles, uh, multi-domain. And we're doing another one this year on May 8th here in Denver with um, AUVSI. So check that out. It's on AUVSI's website. It's a co-located event. Um, we'll be doing a, a mini version of that at the Energy Drone Robotics Coalition Summit in Houston, Texas in June focused, it's going to be called Law Tech Connect Energy Edition. So very focused on like methane compliance and, you know, offshore energy, land and sea and air issues and things Interesting. like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that's probably changing all the time. Totally. Very dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Again, how do you keep up with that? Well, I, you know, I, I personally, I follow a lot of people and what I love about these events that I'm doing, and frankly, it was the reason why I created my company in the first place was to get lawyers and engineers, operators, geoholics, all in the same room talking about these issues together. Because if you've got a bunch of lawyers sitting in some back room making policy, it's not going to be good policy, right? Um, But then again, the engineers may not understand the law. So having having these rich conversations together is critical. Mm. 
absolutely. So do you have a couple more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, you've touched on leadership a couple times. Yeah. Uh, we talk about leadership a lot on the show, so I would love to get your perspective on that. Um, you know, maybe just, you know, just some key points about leadership in general. You know, what, like what, what seems to be the most effective for you, I guess, personally, and maybe some other success stories that, you, uh, that, you, that you're aware of. Wow, you've totally turned the table on me here because I'm usually asking these questions. Ha, huh, boy. You know what? It's really, I think the number one thing, it's all about people and relationships, and you just have to meet people where they are. Um, never assume, right? Like, and I think that works both ways for the leader and the follower. Uh, so true story. Uh, there I was, an Air Force colonel, you know, running a legal office at the Air Force Academy, and, you know, I thought I was a pretty good leader. And then we had this inspection, and, and uh, the inspector comes in and says, morale is horrible in your office. I'm like, what? Mm. He's like, yeah, it's really bad. I'm like, I mean, I was like shocked and it was just like, it, like a, it was like a knife through my heart. And I'm like, okay, so what is going on? So he leaves and I pick myself off the floor and I go to my team and I say, okay, here, everybody take out a piece of paper and write on there, morale is bad or perceived to be bad. And then in the middle of the paper put why, and then put what we should, you know, what, what we should do about it. I, and I said, I don't want you to put your names, just do it. I want to read it and, and we'll go from there. The stuff I got on there, like in a million years, I never would have thought. I got things like, I was homesick and you never called me, so you must not care about me. And you must only care about people when it's public. And I'm like, huh. what? Because I'm thinking, I wouldn't want my boss calling me when I'm homesick with a cold. Because I'd be like, why? You don't think I'm, you think I'm lying? That yeah. I'm not, you know, so... It was, it was, again, it was like this mindset and these ideas. It was like, we don't feel like we can take leave or go to lunch because Colonel Zoldai, you know, she comes in early and she eats lunch at her desk. Even though I told them, but we don't think we can go to the gym because Colonel Zoldai goes to the gym in the morning before she shows up to work. So even though I was like telling them like, hey guys, you know, you're not me, like do your thing, I expect you. So we just changed the office radically. Really? We, uh, yeah, literally. We, we made everybody put what their work, PT time, their workout time. It was on their door. And if I walked in and it, it said, you know, Wednesday's your PT and you're in the office at that time, I'm like, why are you here? Like, go away. Yeah. Go to the gym. Yeah. And we, we just start kicking people out of the office at five, you know, and things like So we did a lot of little things as a result of that. And we, guess what? We started calling people when they were homesick. Because again, like it, it wasn't something that I I personally wanted, but I was like, look, it's not about me, it's about them, right, and yeah. I'm not meeting them where they are. Like they have these needs, I'm not meeting. So we just we radically changed our approach, and within six months, it was a it was a completely different place to work. Um, but again, this was happening, and I didn't even know it was happening um, because you know, as a boss, they don't tell you. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, and they tell you all palpable. the opposite stuff. It's yeah. All the, it's all, oh, yeah, everything's great. Oh, yeah, you do. No. Yeah. Uh, and then behind the scenes, it's. Right. And how do you know that unless you go through the exercise that you did? Exactly. So, I, you know, that's a big thing for, you know, it was a huge lesson learned very late in my career. Yeah. But it really is all about, you know, getting to know people, um, you know, meeting them where they are. And even if it's not something that you would necessarily want or do, if that's something they want and it's not illegal and moral unethical, then yeah. do it. Right. You know, why not? It sounds like what was lacking there maybe is uh, empathy a little bit, but it seems like from an outsider's perspective, uh, military leadership probably isn't too empathetic. Yeah, you know? maybe not. But maybe you, know, you need to be more. Like, I, it's something I know I struggle with personally. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I have to really make an attempt to be more empathetic. Yeah, like, you know, that color yeah. wheel. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yep. green gold, you know, it's just yep. like get it done, you know, like that's just my personality. I know there are a lot more touchy feely people. And, you know, honestly, it was one of those moments where I'd step back and I said, if I was a dude, would people be saying they did, she didn't call me when I was homesick? Mm. Interesting. I don't know. Like, you know, again, and I'm thinking, are there expectations because I'm a woman that as a leader, like maybe, you know, I'm not your mom, but you know, again, at the same time, it was like, all right, get over yeah. that. Yeah, like, yeah. It if doesn't it's their matter. Issue, it doesn't it's their matter. issue regardless like, of who yeah, you are, right? Just, yeah. just do it. Yeah. Good stuff. What yeah. Else yeah, showing? definitely kudos to you for taking the initiative to, to do that. And then, like you said, being a leader is not about you, it's about them. Absolutely. It's definitely something because 
we, we go through the same thing all the time. It's, oh, yeah, no, the, the, they complained about morale. No, no, it's fine. I, we had a barbecue last week. Like, morale's good. No, we, we do things, but not actually listen to what people are saying and just, you know, convince, spend more time convincing ourselves yeah. that we're doing yeah. good for them as leaders instead of actually listening to them and making changes about it. And, and, and the I hardest thing is, you, you know, them are, you know, they are not monolithic. Yeah, so yeah, whereas exactly. maybe, you know, 60% of them all want a birthday card, 40% it's like, why the hell you keep reminding me about my birthday? You know, so it's just like, it's like finding that, that balance and every single person's different. And so really tailoring to those people. Yeah. No doubt. yeah. All right. Anything else, Don? You want to get out there? No. So uh, you have like a, a million different platforms and all these different things you're doing. So how do people connect with you and and all, all your different uh, enterprises here. Oh, thanks for that. I th the best way, I think, is to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, all my podcasts flow across there, and uh, I also post up all the articles I write on there. Okay. Um, and then also my website is, you know, www.p3techconsulting.com. Cool. Uh, a lot, lot of content on there as well, so I think those are the two best ways. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, keep up the great work. Yeah, hey, absolutely. thanks so much. You guys yep. too. Hey, thank thanks, you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It was yeah. a lot of fun. All right. All right. All right. We're back. We have uh, Lauren with us. Lauren, real quick, just do a quick self-introduction. Give us your name, who you work for, and what you do. So my name is Lauren Reggetts. I am the geospatial and UAS team lead for Kerasoft Technology Corporation. Uh, Kerasoft is a government distributor for various IT solutions, and we help support our partners through uh, different contracting vehicles and being an extension of their sales and marketing efforts. Um, so started our drones portfolio uh, about three or four years ago. Um, we've had a growing geospatial portfolio for years on end now. Um, Kerasoft's been around since 2004, and last year as a company as a whole, we closed out uh, in a $12 billion revenue. Oh, wow. So we're really excited to take on new partnerships and expand our business unit in the GIS and UAS field. So what would be like an example partnership? Like who do you partner with? So some of our top uh, uh, partners, we have everything from, you know, your Adobe's, your VMware's, your uh, Google, Oracle, um, and then we also work with some of the smaller companies um, that we have um, that are just getting started out in the field and we just really want to help them get their heads in the door into the public sector business and make sure that all of our customers that come to us have all the end-to-end -end solutions no matter what they're looking for. How long have you been with the company? I've been with Carousel for four years. Four years, that's a long time. Yeah. Especially this day and age. It's like an eternity. <laughs> Um, what, what do you like about working there? I love everything from just the atmosphere, the technology itself, coming to shows like this and learning how the different use cases, people are using it out in the field. Um, my dad actually uh, studied a lot of different satellite missions, so that's how I got to follow, find a real love for different geospatial solutions mm. and uh, drones business. What's been, the, what's been your favorite or most exciting thing that you've uh, seen here this week so far? So far this week, so I actually flew in this morning. Oh, so okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm still looking out for everything, <laughs> um, but I really want to stop by. Um, I saw the Trimble booth has some cool laser scanners over there, so I might want to check that out. They're one of our partners. Oh, nice. Um, I've always loved seeing all of the physical drones I'm seeing around this hallway right here, so that'll be interesting. And um, I'm going to attend some of the sessions tomorrow if I can. Cool. So I'm having a hard time understanding what Kerasoft does exactly. <laughs> so no are you, worries. Uh, are, are, are you like a, like a middleman between the government or government entities and like some of the technologies that are here? I mean, just expand on that just a little bit. Yeah, so it's like a middleman. Um, okay. So picture a reseller, but we provide a lot more value-added resources and capabilities. Okay. So it'll go from the end user, the government agency, um, you know, whoever that may be, then through Kerasoft, and we'll, we'll work with them hand in hand. Um, we, we have a lot of contacts within the government space, so we really want to make sure that it, the process is as seamless as possible because it can be quite lengthy. And then we'll, we work hand in hand with our partners and um, are really seen as an extension of their team and how to help grow their business within the government sector. 
Yeah, so if a specific agency has a need for a bunch of IT equipment or a bunch of drones, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys can help identify those needs and connect the agency with the provider of, you know, say a, a drone provider and you connect the two and help facilitate, like you said, it's it can be a lengthy process of, you know, they just don't hand you the credit card and you buy it. I mean, there's a, there's, you know, some stuff that goes into it, right? Right, exactly. And a lot of that has to do with managing different contracting vehicles that Kerasoft helps take the load off of and um, making sure that on the other end, our customers have that end-to-end one-stop shop for all of their solutions. Is it uh, purely, um, you know, uh, it, does it include consulting services or is it just hardware and software? Yeah, so we actually work with a, a lot of different consultants, um, one of them obviously being Don Soldi, um, who works closely with us on building out our Jones portfolio. So we'll help offer that to some of our partners. Um, like for example, I, I know that she also does her podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's hosted a handful of different drone partners like Agility and Blacksmith Technologies and Valari, um, and they're, they're all a part of us. So we extend that to our partners as well. So what do you find to be the most rewarding part of your job? Most rewarding, I love seeing an, a full circle story come together, and especially when that's shared with other companies, I mean... You're going to have to give us an example. As much as okay. you can. Yeah. I know you deal in some top secret rooms and have some encrypted stuff going on, but as much as you can tell us, we'd love to hear a story. Uh, a best example I can think of is when, when we have two partners that come together. Um, they work on a project uh, for, you know, they're building out digital twins or something, mm. and, and they're working hand in hand because one of them is... Are really, really good at aerial technology. The other one's good at um, the GIS platform for construction. And they'll work together. They'll give that to the customer, um, work through Carousel and work through our contracts and being able to see that customer then grow and really put that project to life and then go on stages like here um, at GeoWeek and explain how they were able to be successful through all these different partnerships. Hmm. So what would be uh, Kerasov's goal this week, being here for these few days? Just creating new new partnerships? Is that the idea? Or yeah. opening some doors? Yeah, goal this week is to create new partnerships, see who, want, who else wants to partner out there, um, see who needs help with contracting vehicles or growing their uh, public sector business. Um, if there are any government customers out there, let them know, hey, we're here to help. And then me personally, I just want to learn more. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Did you have a, a background in geospatial before you took this position? I actually did not. I just had a great mentorship program through yeah. the company. Kerasoft is phenomenal oh, nice. at that. And um, I, I really followed my, my mentor, my boss, Lacey Ween, into the space. She, she's really close with a lot of people over at USGIF and got me in the door to some networking opportunities that have been really cool. Yeah. So what do you think about all the technology that's here? Is it pretty pretty mind-boggling yes absolutely yeah. <laughs> insane every year it's something new <laughs> yeah, for sure for sure um have you had a chance to walk around yet a little bit yeah. uh from you know the booth to the bathroom <laughs> right yeah that's about exactly what i've done so far yeah for sure so what's next what are you excited about uh what's next i mean i'm excited to see where everything goes in in 2023 um i know there's been a lot of talk on how to combat some of these weather balloons that have been going around. So we'll see if there's any solutions <laughs> well, out there funny. for that. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, aliens. Yeah, it's still, yep. can't, can't rule it out. <laughs> can't rule it out. Can't rule it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what else you got? Uh, man, I've got, uh, I'm just really curious of like, you know, you talk about, you know, making some partnerships here and what are kind of like, I, I'm, I'm guessing there are clients that you have or partners that you that potential partners that don't know what you know value that you know you guys can provide like do they even realize that they can uh, there's more public opportunities out there <coughs> so can you talk just a little bit about let's say I owned a small business what could you do for me if I knew that I could do you know provide services through various government agencies Sure. So first steps, you know, we look to partnering um, and, and figure out what solutions portfolio you would fit in. So we have a lot of different 
solutions portfolios like our geospatial or AI, um, you know, just hardware in general, IoT, and and put you in that that category, introduce you to the team, um, help go over the overview of Carousel and who we are as a company and the benefits that we can provide. This um, is a large company. Yes. Yep. Yes. Publicly large. traded. No. No. Interesting. <laughs> We're going to try to get some insider stock information. <laughs> no, no really, I unfortunately <laughs> don't have that. <laughs> but I'm guessing yeah, you guys see a lot of uh, upcoming opportunity with more infrastructure spending and more investment. Like it's definitely a, a trending up uh, kind of company, right? Right, right. And I mean, even just with the, uh, the infrastructure, like you were talking about with like the IAJA, that's a huge initiative for mm. our geospatial business unit. And we really look to incorporate things like that into our campaign and let customers know, hey, we have the funds out here. Here's a step-by-step guide on how to utilize right. those funds. Yeah. You, you, basically, you do all the legwork and they just let, you let the company do what they do well and you do all the legwork in between and mm-hmm. basically connect them with a client that they didn't have any idea about, right? Right, right. We rely on our partners for all the technical aspects. Uh, you know, we have a, a solid overview, but... Uh, we really look to our partners for the engineering ca- capabilities, um, and and then we'll, we'll help out with everything in the middle. Which is what they're naturally not good at anyway, right? <laughs> it's true. That's a good point. So you provide a, a very valuable service. Yes, I would say so. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, what else? Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. What else you want to get out there? Um. The, all right. I, th- I think that's, that's really all it. I have. <laughs> all right. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Yeah. yeah how can uh, how can people, me. if they're interested in the company, uh, how can they find out more? Uh, you can find out more um, online through our website is carasoft.com, C-A-R-A-H-S-O-F-T.com. Um, we have tons of resources on there for uh, what partners we currently have, what contracting vehicles, um, any current events that are coming up. Um, you can also stop by our booth. Um, it's right around the corner at Booth uh, in the 400 aisle. Veritas. One of your partners. Yes, Veritas is one of our partners. Yep, yep. This is interesting. I wasn't aware of all this stuff. Yeah. Because don't, we don't work in the government sector that much. Yeah, it's you know? because we don't have good partners that help us. <laughs> See where I'm going here? Yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, Lauren, it's been a blast. Yep. Really appreciate you stopping Thanks, by. Yeah, appreciate it. It's been it. a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you.